0: Imagine that you right now are in the future. That the last person who was appointed to be saved has been converted. Christ has returned on the clouds in glory and with the holy angels. The last trumpet has sounded. The believers who were alive at that time were changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The final hour has arrived, and all who were in their tombs have come out. They've heard the voice of the Son of God, and they came out. All of the dead, great and small, have stood before God and the books have been opened. Everyone has been judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Jesus has separated the sheep From the goats, he has placed the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He said to those who were on his right, he said, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The day of the Lord has come like a thief, and the heavens have passed away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies have been burned up and dissolved. We are now in the the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new earth. What's it like? What is it like? This is the last part of our series on true worship. We've already seen the God of true worship, that God is a jealous and holy God who has revealed himself to us through his word, that we don't have the option to make God in our, in our own image, but he has revealed himself to us, and that is the God whom we worship. We've seen the nature of true worship, that true worship is in spirit, And truth. We've seen the affections of true worship, that is, the command to sing and shout for joy. What does it mean when God has impacted us so much internally that the natural response is a response of shouting for joy? We've seen the scope of true worship. That true worship of God is not just what we do on Sundays or a portion of what we do, but it involves the entire life. In view of God's mercies, we offer our entire selves to Him as living sacrifices. Well, for this last part, we're going to look at eternity and true worship. Where's everything going? What will true worship look like in heaven? What's the role of worship in heaven? And how should that impact our lives today? To examine this, I wanna encourage you to open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Father magnify your name in our time this morning wet our appetites cause us to long after heaven may we be worshipers of you now by faith so that we might enjoy the undescribable amazing reality of worshiping you in heaven by sight. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, and that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at two things in relation to true worship in heaven. The first is the preciousness of a place, the preciousness of a place, and then second, the presence of a person. The presence of a person. The preciousness of a place and the presence of a person. Now, this section of scripture that we're in, in the book of Revelation, uh, actually began in chapter 21, verse 1. So um, the the purpose of this book was for uh, the Apostle John to uh, show uh, the church in that day what was to take place. Uh, revelation is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ultimate eternal purposes, where the world is ultimately going. And Um, And so we see a series of visions throughout the book. But the section we're in right now began in chapter 21, verse 1, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, Heaven has come down to earth, and in chapter 22, we're getting a snapshot of what it looks like when that event occurs. I want us to notice just a few things about the preciousness of the place. First, it's a holy place. Heaven is a holy place. Uh, We see this from verse one, It speaks of the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. That bright as crystal is a picture of purity, a picture of perfection, of spotlessness. We also see it in verse 3 where it says that there was nothing that is accursed. So the, the curse that was spoken of, Uh, As Garrett has been going through Romans and Romans chapter 5 last week spoke about the curse of Adam that was instituted when uh, our first parents disobeyed in the garden. And from Adam all the way up until now, we have been in a cursed, fallen world. And that's going to continue until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. But once he comes back in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more curse heaven will be a holy place, unaffected, unstained by sin. We also know that it's going to be a holy place because of that phrase, uh, their names will be, or his name will be on their foreheads in verse 4. His name will be on their foreheads. This, and this is something that, you know, the, the book of Revelation is a notoriously confusing book because of the high amount of symbolism that's in it. One of the one of the keys to to unlocking the the jewels and the gems that are in revelation is familiarity with the Old Testament. Because there's actually over 400 separate references to particular Old Testament passages that John's reader at the time, his readers at the time that he was writing this would have immediately had the the Old Testament references. For us, we're a little less familiar with the Old Testament, so sometimes the the figures don't make sense. But uh, when it speaks about names on foreheads in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8, Israel was told to put a sign of God's law, put it on their hands and their foreheads. Their hands indicating their their deeds or their actions and uh, as frontlets between their eyes or on their foreheads indicating their minds. The idea is that God as the supreme lawgiver has complete authority over us, mind and action, body and soul. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, It will be a place that is filled with the complete rule, reign, and authority of God over his people. Heaven will be a holy place. Notice that it says in verse 2 that through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, this is a direct Old Testament picture. So in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12, listen to what it says. It says, on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So that's an Old Testament reference speaking about the people of God worshiping God at a future time, the time in Revelation 22. This healing, uh, this uh, this fruitfulness of the trees, it, it speaks to a constant renewal and refreshment. It means that nothing will ever get old. Nothing will ever wear out. It will forever be new. There will will be no more uh, bondage to decay. It's what Peter spoke of in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, when he spoke of our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Heaven is a holy place. Not only that, it is a prepared place. It's a prepared place. The same writer John in the Gospel of John chapter 14 verses 2 and 3, he quotes the Lord Jesus as saying this, in my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Precious promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all been invited to an eternal heavenly celebration. And Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus is in charge of hospitality. Praise God for our sister Patty. She kills it on the hospitality, but it's nothing compared to the hospitality of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And he has been getting the guest rooms ready for the last 2,000 years, preparing a place for us And so since Jesus is taking the time, all that time, to prepare this place for us, shouldn't we use our lives to prepare ourselves for that place? The Puritans used to speak of the idea of being fit for heaven, that this world is not our home. You know, it's like the difference between a traveler and a resident. The difference between a hotel room and the room in your house where you live. They might look similar, but you actually approach them quite differently. So if we're staying at a hotel, you don't go into a ho- hotel room, take out the, the hammer and the nails and the drills and start drilling stuff into the walls. Why? Because you're at a hotel. It's a temporary stay. You're not, it's not meant for you to be there permanently. Well, in the same way, this earth is like, for Christians, this earth is like a hotel room. We need to have our bags packed and ready to go. Because it's only a short little while before we will all be standing before God. What we see here in chapter 22 will be our present at some point, very soon, and we need to live in light of that. You know, I think, you know, this idea of, you know, speaking about being pilgrims, strangers in this world, I think part of the reason why the Lord allows affliction in our lives is to remind us of this fact, because we're prone to forget, we're our, our natural tendency is to try to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. We like to break out the drills in the hotel room. But what God likes to do is, is he, he uses affliction to loosen our grips on this world to prepare us for eternity. One of my historical heroes, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, he says this about Affliction. He says, afflictions are useful and to a degree necessary to keep alive in us a conviction of the vanity and unsatisfying nature of the present world and all its enjoyments. To remind us that this is not our rest and to call our thoughts upwards where our true treasure is. When things go like we wish them to go, Our hearts are too prone to say it is good to be here. And that he's quoting Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus is is transfigured before them. And Peter's like, let's set up the tents. We're just going to chill right here. We don't need to go down from the mountain. It's good to be here. But that's what we're prone to do. When things are comfortable in this world, our tendency is to say it's good to be here. But God loves us too much to allow us to be satisfied with this world and so afflictions are a gift from god to fix our thoughts and our hearts on our true eternal treasure our stay in this world is temporary you think about it the the longest Lives of people who live to be 100, 105, 110 years old. In the scope compared to eternity, that is nothing. It's minuscule. It's a blip on the screen. And yet, most people live their lives as though this life is all that there is. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to ask you. Have you experienced a taste of how unsatisfying this world is? Have you experienced it? Do you know the lack of satisfaction in this world? I would argue that you have, even if you don't realize it. It looks something like this. This is one of the ways it could look. You enter into a new relationship You have all the the buzz and the butterflies that come along with the newness and the the text messages, and it's all fun and games, it's good. But then you go on and you get to know the person, and it may be good for a while, but after a while, things maybe start to break down, and you start to wonder, "Did did I make the right decision here? What's wrong with this person? I think I need another person. And so you break up with them and then start the cycle over again. Or you get that new position, that new job, and first few weeks, it's amazing, you love it. But over time, you just become, just, you just discontent with it. And so you figure, I'm unhappy right now, it must be my job. And so you go searching again. Nothing is ever Enough. We always want more. And so people become serial daters or serial homeowners, serial car collectors. I recently read an article called Confessions of a Serial Husband. There's a guy, 88 years old, who had been married nine times, nine different women, And as he's being interviewed, he couldn't even... He he was struggling to remember the names in the order of some of the wives. It's sad, but he's living out what naturally happens in the heart. That is, there's there's a a natural lack of satisfaction with this world. And so we feel like we have to keep going and going and going. C.S. Lewis said... If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's exactly right. If you're completely at home in this world, you'll never be at home in heaven. If you're completely at home in this world. Not only that, but heaven is a familiar You see in verse 1 the mention of water and a tree of life. Where else in the Bible do we see that language? Talk to me. Genesis, yes, the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, listen to what it says. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it it divided and became four rivers. And so John in Revelation is alerting his readers to the fact that the new heaven and the new earth will be a restoration of what was lost at the fall. Eden 2.0, if you will. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. He says, Jesus said to them in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What's interesting about that passage is that when when Jesus says in the new world, the word that he uses that, that we translate new world, the word is regeneration. So Jesus says in the regeneration, this is what it's going to be like. Now, those of us who are believers, we know that regeneration is, is the, the, the beautiful reality of the new birth, that God has removed our heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh, that he's given us new eyes to see, new ears to hear. So what Jesus is saying is that what we're experiencing in regeneration as believers when we come to Christ That's just the first fruits or a foretaste of what God is going to do with the entire cosmos. He's going to regenerate this whole universe. Heaven will be more familiar than we may be accustomed to thinking it's going to be. Think about it. We experience the same God in heaven. He's the same He doesn't change. We experience the same Savior in heaven, Jesus. We experience the same Holy Spirit in heaven. Doesn't change. Many of the things that we'll do in heaven are many of the same things that we're doing now. Earth, life as believers, is a dress rehearsal for eternity. So maybe... Maybe the the songs might be better. (laughs) Maybe our voices might be, will be stronger. (laughs) But we're we're still going to be singing. (laughs) We're not going to stop singing when we get to heaven. You look throughout Revelation, you just see it over and over. The people of God singing God's praises. So we're, we're we're here to warm up, dress rehearsal for eternity. There should be some enjoyment of praise and worship towards God now if, if there's no enjoyment if, it's, if there's zero enjoyment of singing God's praises you should be concerned because that's what we're going to be doing for eternity why, why would anybody want to do something for eternity that they hate doing now we'll be singing God's praises forever We see through a dark glass now, but the time is coming when we shall see perfectly. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes the present experience of believers. He says, you have come, speaking to Christians, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's, that's right now. This is our experience right now by faith. This picture of innumerable, angels. You have texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where the Apostle Paul is given directions for corporate worship and then he just adds in because of the angels you want to do it this way. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> because of the, yes. Because when the people of God are gathered corporately, Jesus is here, God is here, the, pe- the, 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 the angels are present in some mysterious way. This is not just a church service. Weighty realities. And yet, as it relates to heaven, as awesome as this precious place is, the thing that that makes the place special is the person that's there. The presence of the person. Look again at verse one. The angel showed me The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What makes heaven heaven is that God Himself is there Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Father, right, in verse one God, the throne of God. We see the Son in verse one, the Lamb. And then what what might not be as apparent is the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's pictured in this this river of the water of life. I think that's a a symbolic way of speaking about the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I say that is because of what John says in John chapter 7. So same author, different book. He says this. He quotes the Lord Jesus as saying, Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And then, same author in John fourteen sixteen says that Jesus, that Jesus said that the Father will give another Helper who will be with you forever. And so, this picture of the the, the river, the the water of life, is. Is flowing from the throne of God in the Lamb. And so the idea is that forever, God the Father and the Son is communicating his love to us, mutual expressions of love by the Holy Spirit. As we saw in Romans 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit whom he's given us. And so that's not just for right now. That's going to continue into eternity. We will always have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we we rejoice at the thought of heaven, not simply because of streets of gold or things like that, but because of the presence of the person. And, you know, we talked about Eden being restored, but this is going to be better than Eden. So, so, so to make it just like Eden would be just going backwards, but we're actually going to get an upgrade. This is better than Eden, first and foremost, because the lamb is going to be there. The lamb wasn't in Eden in the same way. That is, having taken on human flesh we we will have the person of Christ himself in our midst. We will see him, we will behold him. And it's significant that he's referred to as the lamb here. You know, Jesus is called many different names in scripture, but in heaven in Revelation the most common name is the lamb. And so in that, we can see the centrality of the cross in heaven. Heaven is a cross-centered place. We never get over the lamb. We never get over what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross at Calvary. And I'll say it over and over and over again. The gospel is not just something that gets us in the door, but the gospel is the pathway to glory. And the gospel is what, you know, we we talked about in Revelation, this loud singing that, that sounds like peals of thunder and at the same time the sound of a harp. Why is the singing so loud? It's because of the Lamb and what the Lamb has accomplished. And so what will we be doing? Well, verse three says, the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. So we will serve and worship the Lord. That's what we will do in heaven. And I immediately want to say that it will not be boring it will not be boring to serve and worship God throughout all eternity. In fact, I go so far as to say that anybody who would actually be bored by heaven won't actually be there. It won't be boring, and I can think of at least three reasons why it won't be boring. Reason number one, because we will see him. Verse four, we will see him his face and his name will be on our foreheads. Think about this. We're gonna be in the immediate presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, you will be able to see the holes that went through his hands when he was nailed to the cross. You will be able to gaze upon the head that was crowned with thorns for you. You will look into the eyes of the one who had you in mind when he went to Calvary. You will behold the body that walked out of that tomb when he was raised from the grave. There's not going to be anything boring about that. Hallelujah. This scene in heaven is, is the answer to a prayer request that Jesus prayed for us in John seventeen twenty four. Listen to Jesus' prayer for believers. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Eternity is the answer to Jesus' prayer request. And Jesus would never make a prayer request that would result in boredom. This is the blessed hope of the believer. It's what Moses asked for when he said, please show me your glory. It's what David was requesting in Psalm 27, four, when he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. That request is answered most fully and completely in heaven. Now, this this presence of the person is key because there's many people who think that they want the place but actually have no desire for the person. So, So the person of Christ and the place of heaven go together. And many people, if you ask them, they would say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they go their whole lives not even considering Jesus. Not even thinking about him. Anyone that we love, if we love someone, we think about that. That person's on our mind. That's the person we think about, the person we love, the person we like to talk about. And yet, so many think Well, yes, I'm going to be in heaven. But again, why would would you want to go to a place and be there for countless millions of years with a person that you never took the time to get to know here? The person and the place go together. My man John Owen, Puritan pastor, one of the last things that he published before he died was a book called the glory of Christ, meditations on the glory of Christ. And listen to what he said. He said, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. No man will behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who hasn't in some measure beheld it by faith in this world. So have you seen him? Do you love him? I'm not saying perfectly, but is there love there for him? When, when you hear about this, this, this being able to see him and behold him, is that something that makes your heart? Does it do anything for you? Also, there's not going to be any more curse this is another reason why it's not going to be boring there's not going to be any more curse and we see that in verse 3 no longer will, will there be anything accursed you know this entire world is under a curse we worship God in a cursed world and it's because of the curse that we don't enjoy God to the degree that we should right now the reason why our affections for God are not where they should be is because of the curse. It's because of this sinful flesh, right? So there's many of us who we say, yes, I want that, or we say, I should want that more than I want it. Lord, help me to want that more. That's the cry of the, of the believer who feels the burden of the flesh. These realities should have us jumping out of our seats. It's so spectacular. But we live in a cursed world. And so it's not going to be boring because as we're worshiping God, there's not going to be any more distractions. No more sinful thoughts, no more stress, no more fear, no more anxiety, no distractions. We're, just going to, we're going to see him as he is, with glorified sight. No more sinful thoughts. No more temptations from the devil. Hallelujah. No more pull of the world. Anybody feel the pull of the world just tugging at you? It's not going to be the case anymore in the new heavens and the new earth. We will, we will have our, our vision completely unblocked. No more hindrances to worshiping God. It's not going to be boring. It's also not going to be boring because of who else we're going to be there with. Look again in verse 3. It says, His servants will worship Him. Heaven is a community of servants of God, people who love God and it's, it's an unmixed community in heaven. You see right now it's a mixed community right so when we when we gather with with an assembly here on earth throughout the mix you have people who love the Lord and you have people who are bored by the Lord people who hate him but we can't tell by looking just at a person's external what the case is But once we get to heaven, we're going to be an unmixed company. That is, wherever you look, every single human being, every single glorified, risen, exalted human being that you look at, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person loves Jesus everywhere. And that love for Jesus is going to overflow into love for each other. My man, Jonathan Edwards, has a sermon. I highly recommend it. It's called Heaven, a World of Love. You want to stoke your affections for heaven? Read that sermon. It makes me say, Lord, come now, please. Everywhere we look, nothing but the servants of God, people who love Jesus Christ. Don't you just love people who love Jesus? You know, we're talking, to Garrett was just, just praying for Mark Butman. <laughs> that dude loves Jesus. He wants to talk about Jesus. He wants to know how I'm interacting with Jesus. For that brother, it's all about Jesus. And in heaven, it's just going to be a world of people who love him. Who just want to enjoy him together. And so if that's the case then... Should we not stoke the flames of fellowship with one another right now? <laughs> that, that we're in the company of those that we're going to spend eternity with. We should get to know one another. Invite somebody over. Play settlers or something. <laughs> Another reason why heaven is not going to be boring, boring is because we're going to have glorified bodies and affections. So Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So not only is the universe going to get an upgrade, but we're going to actually get an upgrade. And so our, our affections will then be glorified affections. So we'll have the capacity to respond appropriately to all this glory that we'll be seeing. It's not going to be boring. And The beauty of all of this at the end of the day is that it comes back all the way back to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all about Jesus. Walk with me again through the text. In verse 1, we see the water of life. The Lord Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath that we might drink from the water of life. Jesus suffered on a tree of death that we might eat from the tree of life. Jesus was crushed that we might be eternally healed. Jesus became a curse that we might experience an eternity of nothing but blessing. On the cross, the Father turned his face away from his Son so that we might might have his face shining on us for all eternity. Jesus suffered in the darkness that we might bask in his light forever. And though he was a king, Jesus made himself nothing that we might reign with him forever and so since heaven is a holy place let us pursue holiness now that we might become more increasingly fit for heaven and since heaven is a place where we will be worshiping and serving god Let's pour our labors and energies into serving God and worshiping him now. And since heaven is a place that we will be with his servants, let us seek to love and serve one another now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.